GMs, have you ever felt like banishing a player to the Astral Sea for insisting your rule interpretation was bogus? Players, have you ever felt frustrated that a 19 on a perception check only tells you that there may or may not be something there? Tieflings, are you tired of chairs with no tail holes? Then this is the podcast for you. Where we take a hard look at the rules of the game, the reality of the table, and the roll of the dice to solve D&D's most heated arguments. This is Raw and Order. Dun, dun, dun. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 4. Four of Raw and Order. I can't believe we got here. We've been doing it for a month officially now at this point. Yeah. yeah? I, I can believe we got to episode four. You're right. It's we have a lot like to say. 400 I'm worried about. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's that's at least a year away. How many how many weeks Don't do you think there it. are in a year, Joe? <laughs> I'm on fantasy time. <laughs> <laughs> well, episode four might be really believable. But you know what's unbelievable? What? the reception we've gotten about our show i, I i'm so i'm beyond touched i'm beyond excited you can guys, we talk can yes. we talk for a second about the twitter community yes the twitter community is amazing they are like phenomenal yeah guys last time we recorded a week ago like last friday we were recording and joe said we had 15 followers and we are now up to 46 followers, which yes. I know in the Twitterverse is like, wow, okay, I it took me 20 minutes to go from 15 to 46. My name is Brad Pitt. That's <laughs> irrelevant, you guys. For us, this is a big deal. Joe and I literally just like sit there staring at the number going up and we get so excited <laughs> every single time. It's 100%. Like we will message each other on Discord throughout the week while we're working. And be yep. like, oh my God, 46. <laughs> It's great. And there are a few people that we have had Twitter interactions with that have just been phenomenal. Like this, the encouragement they've given us, the support they've given us. I want to shout out a couple of people. First yeah. of all, at Apparel RPG. Uh, yes. They, he, she, I am not quite sure, but they were Let's kind enough. They. <laughs> yeah. They were kind enough to um, not just give us a shout out, not just encourage their followers to follow us. But they actually took the time to listen to our podcast and they loved it, which was so, so exciting. It's not and, just a follow. It's a fan. <laughs> and I'm almost positive RPG Apparel is based out of Hawaii because yes. they said, good morning, Twitter, Ohana, happy Aloha Thursday. Yep. So we're going to Hawaii. We're going to Hawaii. <laughs> I don't know why, but we are. <laughs> to meet, we're going to hang out. To meet at Apparel RPG. Hello. <laughs> our fan base. Um, yeah. And then just today, we we got another shout out from a different um, from a different Twitter handle. And we did. There was I don't even know about this. Yeah. So there. Well, they uh, Fridays are evidently like follow Friday or something like that. Mm. Anyway, they they ask you to like self promote if you want to, and of course I jumped all over that. Yeah. And um, we got responses from the people that had sent that out, um, and they they were like, you know. The community is so fantastic already. So they were really like, hey, welcome, like, great job. And uh, they mentioned that they had talked with some of their friends about how it would be fun to do like a court trial. 
in the D&D 5e oh universe and i so definitely funny. volunteered the two of us <laughs> to act as their judges <laughs> so that episode's coming up pretty soon guys that's amazing i'm in obviously yeah. so that's great joe would you like to tell our <sighs> listeners about our other super oh fun God. thing <laughs> i'm so excited about this so we decided so Anna's friend, um, Sandy, messaged her and, uh, well, you guys had a discussion about D&D. And she basically said, I'm interested in it, but like, it's so overwhelming to jump in. I have so many questions. What do Mm -hmm. I do? And then Anna and I instantly were like, we could totally add a little mini cast to our podcast called Raw School. (laughs) (laughs) Where we sort of address all of the issues and questions that a beginner or someone who hasn't even started D&D might have about the game. All the way from how do you create an effective character? How do you find a group of players that that you know that you'll mesh with what are the sort of table rules everyone should know um you know just basic things like that yeah what um, do we mean when we say class and race and roles and initiative all of that right. stuff right that's right. out there that we just use that jargon um we we have listeners that have literally never played ever in their life before yeah. and want to and Sandy like Anna's mom one of them <laughs> yeah like my mom <laughs> oh my god is your mom <gasps> Could she be a student in raw school? Yes. She's totally going to be on the podcast. She would be thrilled. (laughs) So you have no idea how excited I am. Um, All right. Well, it's settled then. Anna's mom is going to be on the podcast. Great. Um, You're welcome, Anna's mom. So, um, yeah. So we're really excited to do this. Uh, We'll be thinking about it and coming up with our first episode in the next few weeks, probably. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, if you all have things that specific issues that you as a either a new player or someone who's listening who maybe hasn't played if you have similar questions about how to how to get involved in the game and you're just not sure where to where to go for that information ask us maybe we'll incorporate that into one of our episodes Absolutely. and it'll be yeah it'll be a pretty laid back um just sort of rundown of of our perspective of some of the some of the best tips and tricks for getting started yeah, and I know that you have a few friends that um, are going to start playing soon that have never played before, right? And yes. I know that my group of friends, um, because I forced them to listen to this podcast, are all <laughs> like, well, maybe now I want to play D&D. <gasps> and they all have like just no idea, right? And uh, I would have loved for something like this to be out there as a resource before I started playing. And I think it's going to be great. So I'm very, yeah. very excited. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... So be prepared to listen and enroll in raw school. Get it? It's a play on law school. Did you get that, Anna? Oh, uh, it's. I thought it was called D and D School of Raw. <laughs> that's the official name, but we yes, that's the, we that's call the, it raw school. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I'm thrilled about that. Me too. Well, we have a jam-packed episode. We do. Um, we'll be joined a little later by the Game Master's Merchant, Michael, um, to discuss... Mikey some... the Merchant. Mikey! <laughs> no, it was lovely. Encouragement <laughs> only. Um, Michael's going to join us. Hello! So, stay tuned. And let's jump into it. We have so much to, just, to discuss. Let's do it! I'm ready for it. Let's go. Let's go. 
Hey everyone, it's Joe. I am so excited to announce that today's episode is sponsored by Game Masters Merchant. Is your campaign becoming stale and predictable? Does it lack the pizzazz of sessions gone by? If so, then pick up the Deck of Many Things by Game Masters Merchant. That's right, the Deck of Many Things! Remember from Critical Role Campaign 1 when Grog got sent, you know, you know. The Deck of Many Things is an extraordinarily powerful set of 22 magical cards in the D&D universe that is sure to reinvigorate your players and take your campaign to the next level. The deck is made from premium 280 gram blue core cardstock and features original artwork on the deck's 22 legendary cards. You guys, I even helped edit those. I'm amazing. The deck is available on the Game Masters Merchants Etsy shop and will be available on Amazon soon. These cards are absolutely beautiful. You guys, I have a set of these and we have a special promotional offer. That's right. If you use the code RAW10 on Etsy, you can get 10% off a purchase of the Deck of Many Things through February 1st. 10%. That's fucking awesome. Again, that offer code is RAW10 on Etsy. So go and get these cards. They're amazing. And, you know, send your players to like the Astral Sea or something. The Game Master's Merchant. GMMerchant.com. Oh yay, oh yay, oh yay, the Honorable Chief Justices Joe and Anna of the Supreme Court of D&D. All persons having business before this court are admonished to draw near, give their attention, and pause the latest episode of Critical Role, for the court is now sitting. The first matter before the court today is a motion for rehearing, filed by me, which I now grant. <laughs> Supreme ruler. <laughs> yeah, this is what an autocratic society looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, when the quote-unquote judicial branch <laughs> uh, can just do whatever the fuck it wants. Um, so as Anna will likely uh, make fun of me for, yes. um, I have been obsessing over my response to the moon being questioned. Literally, like the night after we recorded it, I'm like, you know what? I actually don't, I actually want to change my answer. Yeah. And um I had to wait. I think part of one of the good things about not having a huge Twitter following is that it didn't pick up a lot of steam for a lot of people to like um, object to my reasoning uh, online and make me super embarrassed about my conclusion. But um, due to um, one Justice Anna's very excellent slash <laughs> terrible um, <laughs> prosecutorial <laughs> persuasion and and berating um badgering the witness we call it cross-examination you guys come on yeah um i actually am going to revise um my ruling on the moonbeam question that we answered last session so i have this all typed out let me it's gonna take a minute but this is my full thoughts on the issue It's going to be like five minutes, but I have to get this out. Are you serious? Shut up. You're going to love it. Okay. (laughs) I hereby reverse my ruling on the Moonbeam question in its entirety. I would hold that Moonbeam can be cast to a point you cannot see, such as in darkness, but the general rule of not being able to cast a spell beyond obstructions still applies. I would further hold that Moonbeam cannot be moved through solid objects. Um... 
so this ruling relies on the can canon of statutory construction that specific beats general. Um, this is enshrined in the player's handbook at page seven. Um, and actually, if you look at your state's like statutory code, usually it's like, I think in, it's Iowa code chapter four, I believe, but actually these canons are usually codified somewhere and are, are like instructional generally for interpreting law. Um, so it's kind of cool that they, that they embedded this in the player's handbook. Um, but here, um, the spell, the language of the spell is not specific enough to overcome the general rule governing obstructions. So with respect to the first issue, can Moonbeam be placed to a point that you cannot see? Um, I'll start with page 204 of the player's handbook. The text states a clear path to target. If you place an area of effect, which Moonbeam is, at a point that you can't see and an obstruction, such as a wall, is between you and that point, the point of origin comes into being on the near side of that obstruction. What does that mean? That if you were to cast Moonbeam and try and cast it into another room beyond a wall, it would actually just appear on the side of the wall facing you right up against the wall. And uh, th there's a sort of a corollary re relating to cover. Um, it's not exactly on point, but on page 196, it says that walls, trees, creatures, and other obstacles can provide cover during combat. Obviously, we know about cover. Um, and in a February 29th, 2016 tweet by Jeremy Crawford, he said, unless a spell says otherwise, you can't cast it at someone or something behind total cover. Makes sense. Um, now, this that statement doesn't, there's some criticism because it's not 100% grounded in the text of the rules, but I find this secondary source to be persuasive. <laughs> um, thus, I would rule that a solid obstruction like a stone wall would cause the moonbeam to, quote, come into being, end quote, on the side of the obstruction facing the caster, and that it would similarly only be as high as the ceiling or as low as the floor up to 40 feet in verticality. Um, I don't believe that the language of the Moonbeam spell is specific enough to overcome this general rule from page 204. So that's the first issue. There's there's more? <laughs> there's more. Sorry. Sit tight, everyone. You asked for it. This is a legal podcast. Second I, I issue. I didn't. <laughs> All right. Anyway, second issue. Um, similarly, I would hold that the Moonbeam... Uh, that Moonbeam cannot be moved through solid objects. So Justice Anna threw me off here with uh, her expert use of cross-examination, but I disagree, Anna, with your example of the Moonbeam, quote, bumping, end quote, into solid objects. Um, Moonbeam, the text of the spell, specifically states that a, quote, a silvery beam of pale light shines down, end quote. Thus, if a moonbeam were to be moved over a chair or table, it would simply only affect the parts of those objects exposed to the beam shining down. Um, and theoretically, uh, this could also um, provide cover to a creature under the table, much like a wall would. So if you were under the table and moonbeam passed over you, I, as the DM, would say you're not actually affected by the moonbeam spell in that instance. Um Going back to the general rule that a spell effect cannot pass through obstructions, the language of the spell is not specific enough to overcome this rule. The beam doesn't disappear and reappear at a new point of origin. It's moved along the battlefield, much like um, a spiritual weapon is moved. It has it, it, That spell uses the same language. Therefore, if the beam came into the path of an obstruction, it would need to be moved around, or if higher than the obstruction with no ceiling, pass over it in order to be moved beyond an obstruction. Um, and finally, I would just say, um, I would still hold that you can 
move a moonbeam that is behind total cover. So let's say you cast it um, and you go into a different room. So the moonbeam is in a room now on its own. I would still allow you to move it around. However, the previous discussion about metagaming would still come into play here. Uh, and I might make you, depending on the circumstances, make a check to determine whether or not you're actually putting it exactly where you intended to put it um, or or ask what context clues you're using to determine where in the like why you're choosing to move it to that spot, um, knowing that it's possible the creatures inside the room could have moved. So that's my revised holding. OK, well, first of all, the teasing portion which is that Joe literally was like messaging me throughout the weekend after we recorded this and was like, oh my God, I want to change my answer. I found all this stuff. I'm putting it together. We're redoing it. And I was like, I'm down because this is hilarious. And now that he's gone and granted a motion for rehearing, filed by him, granted by him Mm -hmm. and ruled on by him. This is officially my favorite thing that Joe's ever done. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) Second, I came in here because I knew that Joe was going to do this rehearing. I came in here ready to be like, Joe, here are all the reasons I disagree with you. (laughs) And while I, I did have things prepared, what I decided to do was go up, go and like try to find case precedent. Okay. (laughs) Here's the thing. I don't spend a lot of time on like the chat universe of D&D you know Mm -hmm. um but I did for this because I was like we are (laughs) not the first people that have asked this question I guarantee that and there's a lot out there There like there are multiple people that have asked this question multiple people have addressed it and almost every single one that I found agreed with you in whole (gasps) yeah so I I may not like it. I may disagree, but precedent is what precedent is, man. And I know that we set the precedent since we're the Supreme Court and could change yeah. our mind. But I literally have no leg to stand on at this point because everyone out there agrees and cited to that page 204 paragraph. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I, I, I'm glad that you agree that we can cast it where we can't see it. Right. Um, I agree with you now that you can't move it through walls. I I also agree that you can move it over stuff because I feel like we've done that when we have cast Moonbeam. We've right. just like had to move it through stuff or over stuff as long as we are in the same space as it and and whatever. Um, the only thing that bothers me is that the way it is written, it does not say 40 feet or from the point of the ceiling. So in my mind, anytime I'm going to ever cast this moonbeam, it will be just like this weird point of light that hangs 40 feet up in the air, (laughs) no matter where I am. Okay. So just let me have that and we're good. I won't, but luckily (laughs) in my campaign, in my campaigns, you can't cast it because you're not a druid. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, the only thing I would say to that is that the ceiling and the floor, much like a wall, are obstructions. So if, if it can't if it can't do that horizontally and move through an obstruction, then it would make sense that it couldn't do it vertically. Joe, either. Joe, Joe, I, I understand the logic. And I understand that my <laughs> argument is illogical. And that if we were in a two-story building and I cast it on the first story and then mm-hmm. I demanded that you 
punish the guy on the second floor that's standing exactly. in my moonbeam. You would not allow that. I understand. Well, to I, be fair, I, I, anyway. I might, but I would say, little do you know, there was actually an orphanage on the second floor, <laughs> and, you, and you just murdered, like, 17 <laughs> toddlers. Um, what yeah. is what is with me and orphanages, okay? We, we play in this one campaign where I received a bunch of psychic damage because someone <laughs> put a vision in my head I was like, of an orphanage being slaughtered. Clint, what the hell? <laughs> I was like, where where are you going with where this? Because I totally going? forgot. <laughs> oh my god. But yes, okay, so I actually am going to join Justice Joe in his decision in whole. And oh my god. Uh, I'm really glad we had this rehearing, actually. This was I think this was a great example of why this podcast is so fun. And I'm glad that we both ended up with an answer that we're both satisfied with. So, Absolutely. Yay. Joining us now on the bench will be uh, visiting Associate Justice Michael. Uh, welcome to the bench, Michael. Thank you. So happy to be here. Mikey. Um, Michael, for those of you who don't know, but you should because we've said it seven million times. said it like times. five times, yeah. <laughs> right. Is the Game Master's Merchant. That's right. Um, so Michael, do you want to just tell us very briefly about how you got into, uh, D and D? Um, well, the first time I played D and D was my, uh, third year of law school. I played, I got invited to play with a couple of friends of mine and that was in 2014. So if fifth edition had been released at that time, I don't think my one friend who was playing D and D was playing the 5th edition. I think he was still playing mm. the 3rd or 3.5. So we played one afternoon, but it was very half-assed and nobody was really prepared. Um, and I didn't... That was my first introduction to it, but it was really not you know, what I now know as a regular D&D session. Right. Fast forward to... So that was the first time, and then five-year more hiatus... And the first time I played was about 18 months ago or so, or so with you, Joe, um, yeah. and others. And I've been playing, you know, variously here and there ever since. Yeah. You're a player in my campaign with Anna. That's right. And Joe, the other Joe. Other Joe. Um, yeah. And just generally, what kind of law do you practice? You're a lawyer, uh, right? So I am a, I am a lawyer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that we just went to law school for fun. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I civil litigation. Very nice. A lot of a lot of defense work. Okay. Well, welcome to the bench. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So the court will hear only one case today: um, the matter of the DM versus the shield spell. Does a player get to know the two-hit dice roll on an attack before using their reaction to cast shield, or are they only permitted to know whether the attack? hits um i have thoughts on this anna michael would either of you like to start and i'm happy to start otherwise uh, let's have michael start what are your thoughts mike well i want i want joe to lay out like what why is this a dilemma like what is the controversy sure. here right so there's uh, uh, the way i started this question was there's three possible ways in which shields can be cast or three possible moments during during like an attack in combat when shield can be cast there's um 
or when when a player must uh, must state that they're using their reaction to cast it that mm-hmm. I've seen at least being debated online. So one is the player must declare it before the DM reveals whether the attack hits or misses. So the DM just says, I'm going to attack player one and player one says reaction going to use shield. The second instance um, that I've seen is that a player must declare uh, when they know the attack hits, but that they are not permitted to know the exact two hit number. So they're not sure whether or not the using the spell slot is going to be helpful, um, They but they have to declare it at that time. And then the third possible way I've seen it is that the player um, not only knows that they have been hit, but they get to know the exact number so that they would know before casting the spell whether it would be helpful. Um, so the big argument is which one of these is correct? So I think... So I'm, I'm on page 275 of the player's handbook. I'm looking okay. at the shield spell, and the casting time says that it's one reaction which you take when you are hit by an attack or targeted by the magic missile spell. So I think that first, I think we can pretty easily rule out the first interpretation because you do know that you are hit. So, but do you know what the hit dice is? That's not provided uh, by the plain language of the shield spell. (laughs) So then I think, Joe, we get into your favorite arena, the DM's discretion of whether or not (laughs) uh, the player ought to know uh the dice roll um and so maybe hold on maybe we'll we'll sort of stop there anna you you said you agreed right yeah actually i agree with that whole analysis and and i know it will be shocking for you to hear this joe but i also think it might come down to dm discretion (laughs) (laughs) what right well of course as any as any even bad lawyers should be able to tell you as written um the the player must know whether the attack has hit or missed in order to cast the spell Mm -hmm. if the attack missed technically the trigger for the reaction has not occurred so you you couldn't raw actually cast shield so i agree with you all i saw this the reason why i broke this down into three distinct um possibilities is because i actually saw some dms using the first one and they're like yeah it's like you know like mystery to it and i'm just like that's not great i would feel really deflated as a player if i was required to do that before even knowing if it hit well do you think there's uh sorry mike no i was just going to say i mean to play devil's advocate here but it does say hit by an attack or targeted by the magic missile spell so if you know that you're the target of a magic missile spell then it's i mean it's but that's an auto hit magic missile is auto hit so So if you're targeted you're hit right yeah yeah Yeah, i'm ignoring like like magic missile right now just because that's such a unique circumstance you can you can either cast shield you can counter spell it there's a whole bunch of things specific to spells but when we're talking just the first half of it of of whether an attack hits or misses i i think this first one and we all seem to be in agreement that this first um one that the that the player must cast it before they know if it hits or misses is just doesn't make sense so there was an interesting like nuance i saw online because i was also looking up this one in preparation for today and it's that you can know what the dm rolled so you know the number that he rolled or she rolled Mm. but you don't know what the modifier is so you're taking the risk of 
okay, I know that it hit, but do I know by how much? So is it worth casting shield? And what are your thoughts on that? I'm trying to think like, you know, what from a, a practical, I guess what I'm thinking about is what does it mean to know that you've been hit? Right. Isn't that really what it comes down to? I mean, you aren't, if, if the DM rolls a 12, but your AC is a 14, then you're not hit. So the DM says, I roll 12 and you go, okay. So then we miss the trigger, but then the DM says, oh, but I have a plus five to hit. And then you are hit. Well, then that's different because at first you, you know, the, uh, the condition precedent wasn't met. And then it was. <laughs> oh God! You're using you're using legal terms like condition pre- Oh no! Is this property but, related? So like this this doesn't give you the numbers, right? So the DM rolls on the table and he rolls a twelve, and then he looks mm-hmm. down at his modifier, knowing what your AC is, and says you were hit. But the DM chooses not to tell you what number he hit you at, right? So if your AC is eleven and he rolls a ten and he tells you you're hit, and you cast shield and it takes you up to. 11 plus 16, 10, 10 plus 5 plus is five. 15, JK. Or 15, but yeah. he had like a, he had his own plus 5 as a modifier. It still hits you regardless of the shield charm, right? So if you if you are told that you're hit, does the DM have an obligation to tell you what number he had so that you know whether shield is worth taking? Right, that's the crux of the issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you guys are both right. This comes down to DM discretion. Yeah. But it so has to be just how the a, DM wants to play, right? Yeah. But it's it's right. got to be consistent, though, you know. And yes. so, like, what in terms of if you're a DM trying to adjudicate this controversy at your table, do you? So you, you've told the player that they're hit, but you don't tell them what the number is. And the player I mean, just I, I, takes I, a risk. I think it could go either way, right? I, I mean, I think if obviously if you're playing um, uh, a, a wizard or what class is a shield available to? Is it only wizard, wizards? sorcerer, um, hexblade, warlock? Uh, I believe that there's maybe war cleric. There might be a paladin subclass. So it, it's available to quite a few. Mm-hmm. Um, but so here, okay. So it's funny. So here are two different opposing tweets. Uh, so in 2018, Jeremy Crawford confirmed. Well, I'll start with the earlier one. In 2014, Mike Merles, who a lot of people, you know, don't necessarily agree with all of his statements um uh sometimes he contradicts himself um has stated that the caster should know the two hit number uh before being required to uh, declare the reaction however in 2018 jeremy crawford confirmed that that's not the language of the spell and they're Mm -hmm. not required to know so this is sort of the pin you know the this is emblematic of something that is dm discretion well here's Um, the thing like how realistic is it that your dm remembers if you're playing with like six people at a table that your dm remembers what your ac is right because when when i play in your game joe you usually roll the dice and then you say 17 to hit like you're ask you're asking me right like 17 to hit and i say uh, yes or no but i do that for a reason so so actually most dms will will keep track of like very few things an AC and HP maximum are usually the two things that they keep track of behind the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I just know that you're playing a paladin, you have a shield, you're, and I know what armor you have. So your AC is 18, and I know that. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't even need to write that down because I just I just have that memorized. But um, I always 
personally follow what I call the Matt Mercer rule because I really like how he does this. And I think it's the most um, equitable. So every single time Matt Mercer rolls an attack roll, um, he will ask um, whether the attack hits. Uh, so no matter what I roll, I could roll a 26 and I'll say, does a 26 hit? And the reason is because I want to give the player the opportunity to use whatever reactions they want to use, even if I know that like a shield in that given case wouldn't necessarily overcome the uh, uh, the role. So I just think this is the fairest option because otherwise you get into this awkward situation where you as the DM have this font of metagame knowledge that no one else has, right? Because I, as the DM, have to know what your attack rolls are in order to know whether my creatures are hit because you guys don't know the AC of my creatures or the abilities my creatures have. However, the same isn't necessarily true. Um, uh, I, as the DM, I know your AC. I know whether you guys have shield. So I like to, to do this because it forces me to play by the same rules as you all. And what, and as a DM, I allow the player to cast shield after I tell them what the exact number to hit is. So I will add the modifier, I will roll, and, and then I will tell you what that number is to hit. Um, and then you can decide whether to use shield. Um, yeah, I think I think it would be really unfair to be like, oh, you're hit. Yeah, okay, I cast shield. Like, oh, but it wasn't good enough. And then you've wasted a spell slot like that. Yeah. I don't know. There's. I agree. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think there's competing arguments. I mean, I think the on the other hand, it's like, yeah, like this spell is kind of meant to be a gamble, right? I mean, it's it it's not necessarily meant to be a you know a one hundred a for sure thing, but um, I, well, I just think that mm-hmm. from a, from a role playing perspective, I do kind of like the idea of like it's a reaction, and I mean right. almost a reflex, and so you've you know you're trying to block something, and whether or not you're actually able to stop the impact or not, that that's a dice roll. Mm-hmm. Pardon, no pun intended. That would be. Um, <laughs> I, I do think that's interesting. I could. I. I mean, I, I could definitely see the, uh, you know, that side prevailing. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know, Michael. Don't, you've DM'd in the past, right? Or currently? Yeah, for like know. two sessions. <laughs> so what? What would your DM ruling be on this? Because we know what Joe's is, right? He's going to be really kind to his players and tell us what the what the number is. In my two sessions, I was just trying not to completely screw everything up. And so to, to think that I have some sort of like a cogent DMing philosophy as it, when it comes to any sort of nuance in the rules would be mistaken. But you did play a wizard for a, a decent amount of time, right? I did, and I did use shield, and that's where, and that's why my initial um, reaction is I would be pissed if I right. wasted mm-hmm. a spell slot um, on something I well, couldn't avoid. Right. Well, here's the decision, right? So if you use the second option, um, or even the third or the first option, if you want to like totally just avoid. No, I'm not even. No, no, no. This is wrong. We don't care about that. That first one. If you're using that, then yeah, that's wrong. So if you're using the second one, um, that they know that it hits, but they don't know by how much. Um, then what I think, I think the only fair way to play that is that every time 
I DM a character that has the shield spell, I'd have to stop myself and say, wait a minute, would my character think this is an attack they should cast shield for? Even though meta, I know it doesn't hit. And that is where I think the only way it could be fair is if you make that sort of on the fly meta determination, knowing that you would be wasting one of your character's own spell slots Hmm. to cast it. Otherwise you are getting an advantage over your players. And I never think that that when it comes to like, like the intricacies of combat, there is so much uncertainty for players to begin with. It just is much more equitable to put everyone on the same playing field with how the mechanics of a spell works. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, I have two more nuances regarding the shield charm that I want also. To I love that you call it a charm, oh, sorry. as if we're shield as if we're at spells, Hogwarts. Whatever. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I learned it in charms. Um, <laughs> it's Wingardium Leviosa, not Wingardium Leviosa. It's ex- it's a uh, Protego, Protego. I'm aware. Shield. Calm down, Protego. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> All right, first variation here is can you react to a reaction so like if you can a creature takes a uh, attack of opportunity on you can you then like react to that attack of opportunity to use this because yeah. you can counterspell your own ca- you can counterspell someone else's counterspell which is crazy if oh. you're casting a sh- yeah this has been confirmed and i i have this could be an issue for a future episode but if you're casting a spell and someone counterspells you you so long as you're not using your verbal component can counterspell the other person's counterspell while you're casting the other spell it's crazy so yes you can use a reaction to um deflect someone else's reaction and even if it's like so it's your turn and you've done an action and a bonus action and you're using your movement, you can then use your reaction. What if what if one of those things, your action or your bonus action, was a spell? Yeah, it doesn't matter. So shield, it, it, uh, shield is one of those things. Like a reaction kind of floats around the entire round. It doesn't consider to be to have occurred, on, quote, on your turn. Um, it, it can be used at any time. So you can cast shield and use a spell slot. That's like the one caveat to the to the no two spell so the slot. No two rule. spells thing. Yeah. Okay. Okay, and then my last one was, and this is this is I think about uh, like the realness of of players. Um, if you get attacked by like a sneak attack, where your where your character technically shouldn't know that you're getting attacked, should you be allowed to use this as a reaction? Or like in a surprise round or something? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah, the surprise. Well, in a condition. surprise round, there's already a rule that you can't react, right? Yes. And yeah. and technically, like, yeah, it's surprise. So there is no surprise rounds, like surprise condition in 5e. Right. Um, and yes, so I believe that if you are surprised, you cannot take reactions. Um, I would, I mean, I think if you, if, if my DM held that, I wouldn't be mad as a, as a caster. However, I don't think I, as a DM would hold that just because while sneak attack gives you advantage, it's not necessarily i mean you still have to expose your your position in order to hit it's not something like you can hit from being invisible um but i mean i don't know if you cast greater invisibility and then hit with that Mm. i don't know yeah i i think i think that the argument maybe the counter argument would be that a wizard would be someone who is who has mastered the arcane arts would know and be able to react soon enough, even on a sneak attack, right. to be able to at least attempt to deflect. But 
I don't know, Michael, do you have opinions on that? Um, not really. It's something I think I would need to think about some more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a great that's a great question. Well, I I think we're all generally at the very least from a, you know, 500 foot level, we all agree that um uh, it's it's up to DM discretion whether the player gets to know the exact dice roll with the modifier, but at the very least, the player must be informed that the attack exceeds or meets or exceeds their armor class in order to um, trigger the reaction. Yeah, agreed, definitely. And that is our holding unanimous, unanimous court opinion. Um, and the matter is settled. Well, wonderful. Okay, well, now this is the fun part where we get to disrobe. But don't worry, because <laughs> oh, we have clothes on underneath, because we're judges. Um, and now we're just going to, like, discuss some interesting issues. So let's start with one. The judicial uh, shooting the shit. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, uh, why, why don't I introduce our first discussion topic? Sure. So this came again from my wonderful friend, Sandy, who is getting more and more interested in playing D&D every day that I force her to listen to my podcast. (laughs) But so she had a question about like the law, right? Like how in the D&D universe, when you're playing, does the law work? Like, are there are there D&D equivalents of policemen is there a D&D equivalent of like a constitution written in whatever world you're in? How does that work? She's also a lawyer, which is why she nerdily thought of this question. <laughs> um, and I explained to her, you know, like the D- the DM creates whatever universe they want. So if they wanted to, before you started your, your uh, campaign, give you a written constitution, they could do so. Um, but that there are these things called character alignments that that uh, that a little bit dictate how you as a character kind of interact with the laws of that D and D world, right? So there's the the lawful, the neutral, the chaotic, and your good, neutral, or bad, or whatever the evil. whatever that access is evil. Yes, right. Um, and so she she kind of wanted to know like what purpose does that play. And, and I built on that to say, how often are our characters actually sticking to that alignment? And what role does alignment really have in playing D&D? From my perspective, if I can jump in first. Yeah. Yeah. Please. When, as a PC, I never think of it. <laughs> Same. And I don't, my understanding, I did a little bit of research on this topic before uh, the show. And... Um, apparently in prior versions of D&D, alignment had a mechanical usage. Like, it mattered for I don't know what. I just saw that there was mechanical relevance to it. In 5e, uh, there's not. You know, it's supposed to... I think it's primarily seen as, like, a a role-playing aid. Mm -hmm. Um, But from my perspective, you know, it's... It's really not something I ever think about. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I. So it's interesting. I agree with you, Mike. I think I would characterize it the same way. Um, I. I don't necessarily think about alignment, but I do think about like the existence of legal systems and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as I play, because I want to be careful what my what what consequences my actions have, because I know as a DM, like 
you guys don't know. I have prisons prepared. I have things prepared. Like you guys just haven't Uh-oh. fallen into one yet. <laughs> when you do, you might rethink your uh, uh, your actions a little bit. But uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I um, I believe I so I believe a lot in in using the alignment system as a guide, um, and we've seen that in other instances. So like campaign one of Critical Role, um, Vexalia had a moment where she had an, an alignment change, um, and that was like really interesting to see how that played out in like this really long campaign um, due to some actions that she had taken. Uh, so I, whenever I create my characters, I do think about okay, what would their alignment be, and then I use that alignment to. Um, color how I roleplay this character. So Anna, in our campaign, our Yawning Portal campaign, before you joined, we told you this story last time, but I'll tell Mike. <laughs> so, and this is a little spoiler alert for those of you who are in Sunless Citadel, uh, or if you plan on playing that, just be aware the next five minutes or so, we're going to talk about Sunless Citadel. So there's there's one point where you meet this kobold and his name is Meepo. And he's this really adorable little kobold. And he... Uh, uh, and he follows your group around and he's like cute, but like sort of dumb. And I was am playing this half warlock, half rogue tabaxi named Umbra, who is chaotic neutral. Um, so she's, you know, not your typical goody two shoes character. She kind of does her own thing. And we got into this combat with some hobgoblins and our party was basically going to die. And I was like, oh, fuck. So I, so previously, just before entering that combat, we had opened a door and saw like a juvenile green dragon just like sitting in a room and we immediately closed the door and we were like, oh fuck, what the hell's going on? So me thinking on my feet, I said, okay, fuck, we're all going to die. So I run 90 feet in one turn, get to the door, open it up and ask the dragon for its assistance. The dragon said, I will help you if you help me kill the kobolds, starting with the one that is trying to enslave me, who happened to be Meepo. (laughs) So I said, sure, Um, (laughs) because my character's thinking is I want to I'm with this party. I'm not going to let them die. They're relying on me. Fuck this kobold. Right. So we let the dragon. I, I let the dragon out. The dragon zooms down the hallway, uses its poison breath to kill all the hobgoblins and spares us. So now it's after combat and I'm standing next to Meepo, this little kobold in front of this juvenile green dragon. And the green dragon, knowing this agreement that we made, turns to us and says, one of you has to kill the other, basically. And what we were supposed to do, quote unquote, is Meepo had this thing, this necklace that you put on the dragon and it basically like enslaves it. Well, my character is is huge. Like slavery is a big no-no for her. She values individual choice. So she sort of smirks in one false swoop, pulls out her rapier, slices it across Meepo's head and beheads him. Um, and this lovable character that the whole party loved, um, it, it was dead. And uh, it was murdered. Whole, it was murdered. So the party kind of freaked out and i think like even as like themselves was like what the fuck like what do you <laughs> and this was the first time they were playing with me as a player and not as their dm and i and i defended it and i said my character is doing what she thinks is going to save her party that is who she cares about because the dm was like we need we have to have a discussion about clint was like we may need to discuss whether that was evil and i said 
it wasn't evil to her. That was good to her. She avoided enslaving a creature with free will and was able to save her party and she would do it again. And uh, he agreed. And um, so all that is to say, I think alignment is there absolutely as a role playing mechanism to really help you think about how to role play and, and, and make your character interesting. Because if there's one thing I hate, it's the people who are like, yay, let's always do the right thing because it's, we want to be heroes. Um, yeah. So I, I'll leave it at that. Sorry. There was a long, st- <laughs> but I took a long, work, but... horrifying story. Yeah. And you guys can't see Mike's face when Joe was telling that story, but he was also <laughs> horrified. <laughs> so. um, Matt Mercer actually tweeted about this. Mm-hmm. And his opinion is that it's it's good like in the beginning when you don't have a ton of experience and alignment can be, um, you know, that it can be an aid for people that are seeking like character direction. But that as you gain more experience and as a game game goes on and you become a more experienced player, it's pretty much useless to him. <laughs> so, um, A lot of it also comes down to just acting rationally. You know, mm-hmm. it's it, there aren't that many choices. I think, you know, good DMs and good, um, you know, scenario builders, you know, within D&D could make those sort of choices, uh, moral choices more difficult. You know, more often than not, though, it seems like the choices that the characters are making are, are based on considerations outside of morality and more on Mm. practicality of because you've got a deal there's this you know huge you know realistic um component to D&D where you're looking at like you know actual you know do we want to travel through mines or do we want to travel over a mountain do we want to take two days to rest you know there's all these like practical things that you've got to consider um and very few touch on you know morality uh, which is what really these, you know, lawful, neutral, evil um, things sure. are really getting down to. So, well, it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to create like a homebrew campaign and have the party determine the direction morally right. that you will go. <laughs> like if you if I propose to like you, you both are in my other campaign. If I propose to you. Like, oh, you could, like, totally take this other track and, like, fuck over the world. Like, sure, you can do that. But are you guys going to do that? Probably not. I mean, I think we all instinctively want to do the quote-unquote right thing. Um, and Unless you all sort of come together before the campaign and say, we want a campaign that is just this type a of way. scorch you know the I mean? earth We want an evil campaign. campaign. We want a... <laughs> um, yeah, right. I, I, I struggled with that actually because I didn't know how seriously I was supposed to take alignment when we first started playing and and the campaign I, I play in your campaign Joe and that I play with Mike was my like very very first experience with D and D right so I was like I picked lawful good because in the campaign I I play like a princess and I felt like I would feel like it's my duty to uphold the law. And I would want to do what's best for my country. So I, I pick lawful good because that's what I thought that character was going to be. But our goal <laughs> isn't, isn't super lawful. 
are i mean we're we're no. out to like kill an emperor yeah. so it might be good yeah you know, like greater good yeah i i think that character would agree that it's good but to be fair right to be fair this is a this is an emperor that like collectively the rest of the world yes, sees yeah. as like but evil. it's certainly not lawful <laughs> so but is it lawful right so like if you if you expand the question back to sandy's original question like Okay, well, if the legal system in Stolheim, which is the city that this emperor resides in, obviously murdering the emperor is illegal, would a lawful good character do that? And then it's like, well, that's where alignment becomes, you know, situational or or at least interpreted differently. Alignment doesn't speak to actual legal systems, though, right? I mean, I think lawful in in alignment is not about following the law. No, it's, it's about like ethics and morals, rules. right? Yeah. Right, yeah, right. Or, yes, yes. But, but yeah, like, is it, would is you it kill the emperor versus you know, capture like them? That, I'm and, like, I'm, I'm my character right. asking myself these questions. But Anna was like, fuck yeah, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> well, and like, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I don't necessarily think I agree with with Matt Mercer in that. Tweet. I haven't seen that tweet, like, that it's useless. I think it's still really fun to look at alignment as, as a as a tool that can, if you can commit to it in the role mm-hmm. play, it mm-hmm. can make a fun character. And I think that, you know, y- you all will see different characters of mine have different, um, you know, alignments. And uh, I really do try and stick to those as much as I can, because I think it, it actually ma- is more fun for me because it's a challenge and it, it's more interesting. It makes my character less predictable. Yeah, I think if you can use it to make a more complex, nuanced character, then absolutely it should be used. And uh, somebody named Ian Livingstone, you probably go, you guys probably know who that is, but I don't. But he made D and D like really huge in the UK. Oh, um, yeah, and and so he was he's been in there since like the seventies, like since D and D like really first started, um, and he one of he quoted he was quoted saying that it's often just like it it's criticized as being arbitrary and unreal but he said but it works if played well and provides a useful structural framework on which not only characters but governments and worlds can be molded yeah so i mean i cool. think there is it's been so often like I said, it, it, it comes down to convenience. Like in in a D and D session, more often than not, if if you were to you know if if the DM gave the party a choice of traveling you know by land or traveling by sea, but it costs nine hundred gold to travel by sea, or else it costs six hundred gold to travel by land. But the DM tells you, well, you know, there's you know a rich person in this town, and you know heard tell that there was five hundred gold in their safe. Um, that you could, you know, go rob them and afford the opportunity to travel by sea and save yourself however many days of travel or something like that. Um, Very, it would not, so that brings up this like moral dilemma um, that would implicate alignments if that was presented. Um, But it doesn't seem like that's very often on the forefront of a player's mind. And I mean, and so many things, like if you see you know, a, a, a key hanging or hanging from somebody's side, well, you'd be stealing it. Right. And, you know, 
otherwise, I mean, I think how, how often in D&D you're like knocking down doors that are locked or something like you, people don't go right. around knocking down locked doors. I mean, that is a that is a, oh, don't a you very. Mark? Yeah, no, I don't at least I won't mean, speak to Anna's activities, but I don't. Um, and so I do think that maybe if it was, you know, at the forefront of the player's mind more often. And that, like you said, Joe, like there's, there is actual consequences. Like you don't just go, mm-hmm. you don't just go around knocking down, you know, locked doors um, in your everyday life. And if a party chooses to do that, uh, they should be prepared that that could, that could result in, in something poor. And so, but it also adds a, a, another layer of, you know, investigation and, and difficulty mm-hmm. to the game that I think a lot of us really like, uh, about D and D, and so I think there are ways to make alignment more interesting, um, because yeah, you, you could remind up... your players, like, well, you're a party of of five lawful or or at least good players. You know, is this? Do you really want to knock off the rich guy in town, or do you really want to knock down this locked door? I mean, those things right. that I think if you could remind people and say, you know, does yeah, that I matter agree. to you think... or not? I think the the more a DM can introduce those kind of moral dilemmas into mm-hmm. games, the more interesting it becomes for everyone, right? And, like, I certainly know I have characters, like a character I used to play with you, Mike, and I'm going to be playing with Anna, Inky. Um, like, yeah, uh, he's he's a, a good character and probably wouldn't do something like that. Um, but if we had a rogue in the party who didn't give a fuck, like, okay, maybe we have, now we have a dilemma. <laughs> And it's like raising her eyebrows, like, oh, because you're playing. I'm a playing rogue. a rogue. Yeah. Um, uh, so, and I don't give a fuck. So. Right, exactly. Perfect. So, like, how does that manifest in game? And I think that that's where the really good RP and discussion comes out. So, I, I think. And I was just oh, going to say that Mike's yeah. brought up the, the like realness question, practicality a lot. And, and that's actually a really good segue into our second topic, which is Mike's topic. So. Yeah, no, I was just going to, to put a, to put a cap on that last issue though, I was just going to say at the end of the day, just because you have an alignment does not mean every decision must fall within it. Mm -hmm. It is a guideline. It is a general moral compass. Those things sway and turn and that's okay. It's all about just sort of what, what drives your character and maybe your character's goals are more important than what their alignment is. Yeah. I mean, it changes for real people in real life. So why wouldn't it change for your character? Exactly. Sure. And people's actions often do not agree with their alleged principles. So, yeah. (laughs) Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's an entire party of our government. Okay. So, um, uh, Michael, before you came on to this show, you had told me, yeah, I'd love to come on. And I really want to rant about (laughs) this one issue. And that is this general sort of distinction between or or that DMs strive to make a game, quote unquote, real. Sure. Let me let me take over because there's not. And I I am sorry to interrupt, but there's really not much more to it. It's more of like a semantic thing. I just can't stand when people are are playing D&D or discussing, um, you know, things that happen within their particular world and talk about it in terms of realism. Well, that's just not very realistic or that really wouldn't happen. Like, well, guys, you realize we're talking about dragons and wizards and gnomes. Of course, it's not realistic. It doesn't matter if it's realistic or not. Um, And so it's it's sort of a, you know, more of a a pet peeve. But so my suggestion for anybody or what, what I would prefer to hear when people are talking in terms of, realism in D&D is more about rationality. Does it make sense for the world 
that the DM has built? Or is it rational and logical um, for players to act in a particular way absent from what we consider to be realistic? Because nothing about D&D is realistic. And, I was, I re- and it's not much deeper than that. It might just be a semantic thing to me, but I just, I don't know. It's just one of those things. It's like, it's like nails on a chalkboard when I see people talking about realism in D&D. Do you have, a, do you have an example that you could share oh, with God, us? No, I, I don't. It happens so frequently though. Just go to just go to Reddit or Twitter and search no, something D and D and you won't get far <laughs> before somebody starts, you know, preaching about well realism and you know you know, to touch on a topic you guys talked on a couple of episodes ago about, you know, one D six for falling ten feet or two D six for falling twenty feet. Well, you know. All right. I think, yeah. So I don't know. I don't have much more to add than that, but I'm just glad that you've given me this soapbox to <laughs> hopefully make a, a small change in the, well, I guess I want to, I want to poke the bear a little bit though. Um, literally. So, um, yeah, literally, are you calling me a bear? Yeah. What? Whoa. Um, I've gained weight, but Joe, come on. <laughs> exactly. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe there's something more there, though. Like, do you think that in game focusing on this this concept of 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 realness and whatever that means, does it mean, you know, physically going from from place to place and spending the exact amount of time in game doing that? Like, OK, you're going to travel from here to here. Let's just jump let's just jump there or no, like, okay, here's like, you're going to roll to see what you encounter during the days, whatever. Um, or things like that. Like, is, is that something I think, that I think when people are making comparisons, well, I think generally when people are using the term, you know, realism or, or realistic, they're making a comparison to our world on earth as we understand it. And mm-hmm. I think any comparisons to the fantasy world of D and D to the real world that we live in are just stupid and pointless and ought not to be made. <laughs> well, wait, no, 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 but you have to, I have to challenge that a little bit because the only way we can view the fantasy world is through the lens of our experience living in this world. Right. So like we are using, I mean, we just had a whole discussion about alignment, right? We use principles and stuff from our lived experience as human beings here to inform how how humanoids <laughs> would would act in a in a fantasy world don't we but it's such a it's such a rabbit hole though i mean last time other judge joe is talking about terminal velocity and that fall damage thing like what the hell are we talking about terminal velocity in D like it can be whatever. Like, yes, oh, and I believe every D&D right world. <laughs> I know. No, it's not really, but it's just like, you know, we don't, I, fight. it's fight. probably fight. okay. It's probably okay in your D&D world if you don't have a terminal velocity concept. Right. Like, you, can, it's probably all right. Um, so what else I, is like, go ahead. So, well, that's a good point. And, you know, Anna, obviously, um, if you have anything to I, add. I, I, the only thing I can think of is also um shitting on other joe a little bit sorry Mosier, for coming out we you. love yeah, you it, buddy no, no no it's not really against him because this joe did it too which um oh. we were like we're we're in this like village or whatever and i'm like mm. should i get a horse <laughs> and both joes were like that's not practical you can't really have a horse think about what that would do you'd have to take care I of that horse that. You'd, what 
I didn't. I just said. I just said. Just be aware. Like, yes, you can, but like, it will have. You know. You know. You will have these. Con- like, you will move significantly faster, or you'll have to like. I was just letting you know that, like, if your whole party doesn't have horses, that might not be as fun. I just wanted a fucking pony. And Andrew was like, we're going to end up eating that pony as a dinner. (laughs) And I was like, shut up, Joe. (laughs) I mean, look. No, I I actually think that goes more towards uh, in-game practicality than it does realness. So practically speaking... It wasn't very practical for my character to get a horse or a pony. <laughs> Fine. But the realness aspect, to an extent, I understand where Mike's coming from. And mm-hmm. that, like, if we get if we get too into it, like, is it realistic that you'd have a dragon as a pet or something like that? And you're like, who the fuck cares? It's right. D&D. Get a dragon. Um, but... Yeah, if you get too deep into it, that can that can get obnoxious. But But I also agree with Joe that... I think it lends credibility to the story and the narrative if you keep if you keep real world expectations and and realisticness in mind. Yeah, yeah and it, it the, I mean this topic touches on like world building in general. Um, you know, you probably don't need to set out on you know in in session zero or session one that like gravity exists in your world. Like, there's probably right. just a number of things that like we can take for granted. Until you until you reach that one city that has no gravity, <laughs> yeah, and then you're like, right. "Fuck!" <laughs> well, no, I think it's funny because like you know, we have this whole podcast, which is like the most pedantic thing in the world, where we're like teasing apart <laughs> rules of D and D to like, but how would this function in game? And um, uh, but uh, you know. And then in the grand scheme of things, you know, there are a lot of rules on the fly I dispense with as a DM for practicality reasons. Um, And because I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's a game, right? I think there's too many DMs who lose themselves in 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 the rules or the just like you said, Mike, the realness and forget like it's my job primarily to make sure you guys have fun and that I have fun. Because if not, what the fuck are we doing? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. I just think that my philosophy in this regard is that real real or not, practical or not, everything you do will have a consequence, good or bad or neutral. Um, so because if, if you don't, then there's nothing tethering you to the reality of the world I've created. Mm-hmm. So if you steal something and, and you don't try and stealth beforehand and someone sees you, that has to have a consequence in my world. Whether, you know, whether the person tries to kill you or thinks it's funny or who knows, but if it doesn't have a consequence, then suddenly you can do whatever you want. And all of these skills you've created, all of, you know, the, the, your alignment, all of these things, this this whole character you've created kind of becomes moot, right? Agreed. So Yeah. That was a great discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Michael. Good job, guys. Michael, if our if listeners wanted to learn more about the items you've created and are selling, where should they look? Well, the item I've created is the uh, deck of many things. I I'll just tell you, I'm working on a set of condition cards um, that will cover all 15 different conditions in 5e, and it's either going to be a set of 45 or a set of 60 cards um, that will have an illustration on one side uh, that illustrates what that condition is, and then on the re- reverse will have you know the verbatim 5e description of that condition um so that way when people are at the table 
And if you're grappled or poisoned, well, what that does to your advantages, your ability checks, things like that. And instead of having to rifle through the player's handbook or, or whatever reference you have, you can just have these cards. And if the DM's prepared or if the player's prepared, they can just quickly switch to that, hand it to them and say, awesome. you know, just keep this in mind. So that's the newest project I'm working on. Hopefully have that released in March or more likely April. Ooh, um, right. But... To your original question, if you want to get a uh, Game Master's <laughs> Merchant deck of many things, you can get it on Etsy or you can get it on eBay. And in a month or two, you'll be able to pick it up on Amazon. Um, but if you what? go to Etsy and you use Raw10 as a coupon code, you can save 10%. So that's right. That until, the, until February 1st. So yes, that's right. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and I've seen some of the Mike has shared with me some of the artwork on those condition cards, and it's adorable, and I love it. So definitely stay tuned for that. Well, Michael, thank you for joining us. Um, yeah, this was great, listeners. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, look, so be on the lookout for more information about Raw School, and uh, yeah, we will and reach out to us. Yes, please. Uh, at- raw and order dnd at gmail.com we would love to hear your questions i'm sure that we will have uh michael on again and again Absolutely. and again uh um, so it was awesome having you on this time and yeah. your cards are amazing and extra special if we get up to 100 twitter followers one of yes. you lucky winners will get a deck of many things and i have seen them and they're absolutely gorgeous so very exciting yeah all right everyone all right thanks guys Okay. Yeah. Court thank is you. court is adjourned. I remember. Yay. <laughs> okay. Bye. Tieflings. That was really aggressive. <laughs> You're going to hear this line like 17 times now. Tieflings, are you tired of chairs with no tail holes? Why are you laughing? Tieflings. <laughs>